Well, it's such a joy and a privilege uh, every time that I have uh, an opportunity to speak and address the Lord's people and to present the Word of God. It's uh, always a marvel to me that I should be uh, one privileged with that, uh, both privilege and responsibility. And I'm thankful for today, for this opportunity to uh, present to you the Word of God. And as you uh, see on the slide, we have the sermon title. And uh, it's too bad that they dismissed all the children to uh, Children's Church or Junior Church. But I see that there, there are a couple of young kids there. So uh, can you read the title for me, uh, some of the younger children? What is it called? Anybody? Right there. Can you figure it out? It's not that hard. Okay, it says, a sermon of an empty, and then what? chair. All right, there is a chair there. I hope you can see that clearly. But um, uh, I'll uh, explain how this sermon came to be first. Um, for some reason, uh, everywhere you go throughout the world, people don't particularly like to sit in front row. I usually, you know, that's the place of honor. And I guess maybe they, you know, uh, they were taught very well, you know, they're asking, you know, they're waiting for the invitation, you know, all the people from the back row, would you just come up here and all of that. So uh, that's something that was practiced and of course in form, on formal occasions that is still practiced. But somehow people in churches throughout the world that I've seen, they just somehow leave the first rows untouched. And uh, this church is no exception. You know, I'm looking at the front row, there's nobody on the front row. I look at the second row, there's one honorable member uh, of our congregation there is in the second row. And then I look across the third row and there are you know, two, three people there and then it kind of fills in more and more as you get towards the back. And uh, I've stared at these empty chairs you know, throughout my ministry and I keep looking at these chairs and it's, it's as if I can hear them talk to me. And so actually I was kidding, you know, a couple of times I, I was going to, you know, I was saying to the Lord's people, sometime I'm going to preach to you a sermon of an empty chair. And because I look at these empty chairs and it's like they're talking to me, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm preaching, but every time I see these empty chairs, it's as if I hear them, you know, talk to me. I hear them ask me questions. I hear them uh, basically say to me, why am I still empty? And that's sort of the question that I, I sort of wrestled with for a while. And then I thought, well, yes, there is a sermon of an empty chair. So today I invite you to consider a text in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. And if you would open your Bibles to that passage, it's a, a parable of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it has to do with empty chairs at a banquet. And I would invite you to read along as we... Uh, start reading with verse number 12. So we just pick up and then we'll orient ourselves in the text. So let's just read straight ahead. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
And even though this is kind of an introduction to uh, what we're about to study, it is so different from the way that we choose people who dine at our house, at our table. And I think there is a lesson to be learned here, to pay attention to those who are ignored, who are unwelcome, who are maybe unlovely because of the choices that they make, because of the condition of their life. But the Lord actually teaches us to be so different in the way that we even arrange guests and invite guests whom we invite. I think if churches were to start practice this kind of a behavior literally, I think there will be a great transformation probably in the, both the life of our family and in the life of our church. But Jesus said those words, and those words didn't rest, you know, rest easy on the people's hearts that heard them. And I'm sure, you know, as I read those words, they probably bothered us a little bit because they contrast, you know, us with this. We don't really do exactly what Jesus said, at least not a normal, not a normal pattern of behavior for most of us. But so what happens when um, Jesus said that? When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And that sounds like a very spiritual thing to say. You would, you know, look at that and you say, wow, what a spiritually minded individual. But I think as you look at the text and within its context, you probably see that this spiritually minded and righteously sounded phrase sort of came out of a desire to kind of change direction of a conversation perhaps and to present you know, yourself maybe in this kind of a spiritual favorable light. But Jesus didn't you know, confront the man with this kind of an expression. He actually used this phrase as a bridge to explain another spiritual truth that gets us closer to our subject of study today. But he said to him, that is Jesus said to him, to this man, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And there is no even an excuse made, just statement of fact, I'm excused, right? So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. 
And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come, to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So the two stories or the two teachings, they connect. Jesus said, when you invite people to your home, invite those who cannot repay you. Invite those who, um, by, by, by the fact that they cannot repay you, will actually secure your reward in heaven. Because that's how the Lord rewards people. If they cannot be rewarded here on earth, then there is a reward that the Lord deposits and that awaits for us in heaven. But then, blessed are those that will eat in the you know, feast of the Lord, in that banquet of the Lord. And then Jesus pre presents this story to explain how people respond to divine invitation to be an honored guest at his feast. And when we look at the empty chairs that surround us in this church or pretty much in any other church that you go to, vast majority of them, and I invite you to look at these chairs. You probably saw these empty chairs last week. Chances are you will see them again next week. Unless there is something that takes place where we recognize that there is a specific will of the Lord that is addressed both to us and to people who are yet not here with us, that they should be both invited and compelled to come. But the first thing that we notice in this text is that there is this gracious invitation of God that is extended to the people. And an empty chair, if you come back to this kind of an idea, what does it speak of when you see an empty chair in a church? Well, I think an empty chair in a church actually proves something. And in one sense, it proves God's goodness, out of which extends this gracious invitation, come to the banquet and eat. In Luke 14, 16, we read, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who have been invited, come for everything is now ready. Now we have to remember that we're reading a story that happened before the internet, before cell phones. And when you prepared anything, any event, you would have to issue two invitations. One invitation is of general nature and it looks forward to the future. It uh, tells people, you know, you know, get ready on this particular time, in this particular day, there will be this feast, right? And so um, people would have to make plans and uh, obvious that the first invitation was sent out to many and then when the time of the feast approaches, this banquet, then, of course, you have to send your servant and say, all right, it's time to come. Everything is now ready. All the calves have been slain. All the tables are you know, full of food. So it's your just you know, privilege to come and enjoy 
this banquet. So it's not just one invitation. It's at least two. One to have you prepare ahead of time, and the other one to say, okay, now it's time to come, okay? So how does a chair speak of that goodness and of that invitation to the Lord's house? Well, empty chairs in the house of God are a testimony to God's goodness in the following way. We have a ready place. It would be, you know, very difficult, I think, to invite a person not to a comfortable building where, you know, you're, you're not even walking on a dirt floor, you're walking on a carpet. There is air conditioning, there is light, there is protection from the weather elements. And we have a very comfortable place to invite people to. We have a ready place for people to just come. And a ready place is you know, filled with comfortable chairs. I hope you are sitting here and you're not suffering too badly. When I visited churches in Russia, in Russia, uh, you know, lots of churches are a lot more poor, I would say, probably. And so we didn't have chairs. We would have these benches, wooden benches. And that was still better than the Russian Orthodox churches because Russian Orthodox churches, by their theology, they don't place uh, seats inside of a cathedral. You, you must stand. And Orthodox people, they come to a Eucharist or a service. They would be there for several hours just standing in, uh, you know, sometimes fairly cold building, especially during winter times, and there's just no place to sit. But we've got a, a, a home, we've got a house, and we've got seats that are comfortable for you to sit. We have time. And that is one of those commodities that we can never uh, multiply to our satisfaction. But praise the Lord, there is this time that God gives. And it's a time of gracious invitation. And last time when we looked at a passage of Scripture together, I was preaching from 2 Peter chapter 3, explaining God's purpose of time. And we saw that God is long-suffering and he extends this time of grace so that people would hear the invitation that is given and come to the banquet of the Lord. More than that, we have the gospel. We're not actually just inviting people for a meal. We're inviting people with the gospel of Christ for something that they can never satisfy in this world. There is a hunger in a sinner's heart, whether he acknowledges or understands what it is, but God actually made uh, human beings to be satisfied only with God. And the gospel is that story of recon reconciliation with our Heavenly Father through Christ's sacrifice. And so we have something to tell them, and we have this gospel invitation. Come anyone, because it is not your capacity to pay something back to the Lord that makes the Lord choose who is invited. The whole point of Christ's story is that people need to choose others who cannot pay them back. And so if you cannot pay anything to the Lord back, that does not hinder him from inviting you. 
That is not an obstacle to him. He is a generous God who needs nothing from you. He has this offer, of gracious offer of invitation to anyone, whether you are capable to pay him anything or not. So there is that good news of the gospel invitation. And lastly, we have servants. In Christ's story, there is this faithful servant who obeys the master of the banquet. It's not the master that goes inviting people. It is the servant that fulfills his master's wish to go and invite. And as many times as he tells them, go out, he says, yes, sir, I'll go. And he goes out and he fulfills the request. And when one people you know, say, no, I'm not going to come, the master says, okay, invite others. And he goes out, invites others, and there is still yet room in the banquet. And the third time, the master says, go out and collect anyone that you can come, compel them to come, so that this house will be full and there will be no more empty chairs. And thank the Lord we have servants in this home, in this house of the Lord. But this story is not about just God's gracious invitation. There is another reality that works whenever God invites sinners to come and feast in his presence. And that is human, sinful, uh, willful sinfulness. That is readily apparent as we read the story. And in verse 18, we see that as the second invitation comes out, they all alike began to make excuses. People don't actually mind the first invitation. It says, would you think about, you know, the Lord's, you know, claims? Would you consider his invitation for the future to come to his presence, to come to that feast? And when you explain God's will in those terms, you don't have to make a decision right now. Just, you know, possibly in the future. Even, you know, hardened sinners will say, well, okay, gracious invitation. Who will say just no, out flat? Oh, there are, there are those who will actually say, no, no, I don't want any, anything to do with that. But most people will actually be polite, and they will say, oh, thank you, of course, no problem. They don't want to be completely, you know, obnoxious about their unbelief. But something changes within sinners when there is the second invitation and it says, it's today. Come today to see the Lord. Come today to partake of this banquet. Nothing changes within the sinner. It just, all of a sudden, something comes out that was inside each one of us all along. There is an enmity toward the owner of the banquet, which is obviously pictured as God. People do not wish to be in the presence of God. No more than a dirty being wants to be exposed in the light. That is what happens because God is light. And we as sinners, the closer we get to that light, the less comfortable we become. The more we see our own imperfections, it actually the light begins to hurt our consciousness, our light, our sense of it in, in, within, and we start to make excuses. Oh, I can't today. 
not today. And so what kind of excuses do we read here? Well, they sound actually pretty good if you just you know, read it on a surface level. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Now, obviously, you know, if you know anything about buying things, generally you go seeing before you buy. Very few people would just, you know, get an invitation, oh, I've got a field for you, why don't you buy it? And you say, okay, I'll buy it, and then I'll go see it. No, it doesn't work that way, because you want to see whether it's full of rocks or not. You know, you want to see if there's water available, if you're planning to grow anything in that field, etc., etc. You are actually making the study of the field before you purchase it, and so this excuse sounds just like that. It's just an excuse. It's not a real reason. There is no emergency that compels a person to go that particular day to go see that field. It won't run away from you. You can do that tomorrow. But no, there are always things that are, that are taking priority as soon as we have something to do for the Lord. Have you noticed that? Um, we can read our Bible, you know. I have noticed that many times. And then, you know, uh, if you miss the morning time for some reason, then, you know, the day takes over and you're, you know, lunch approaches and you think, okay, well, there, there's a good chance, you know, that, uh, good opportunity for me to read my Bible right now. But then as soon as you think of a Bible reading, you say, oh, but there is this other project that I, I need to do. And, oh, I need to respond to this email or I need to, and there is always something that arises at the moment when you do something for the Lord. And that happens to believers. It definitely happens to people who do not know the Lord. There is actually a force that fights, trying to steal the word of the invitation, try to steal the seed of God's word out of the heart so that it will not have a chance even to take root for the, God, the kingdom of God. Well, that was the first excuse. I bought a field. I need to go see it. But he's at least polite. He says, please have me excused. I like politeness. So you're going to say, no, at least be polite about it. But then we see verse 19, and another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. And there is an obvious kind of excuse-making reason here as well. You know, you, you, again, you buy oxen after you've examined them, after you know what they can do after you know that they're healthy, that they actually can do the work. And then even, even if for some reason somehow prevented something prevented you from examining your oxen and you know someone else did the purchase for you and you want to see what you bought, that is not an emergency. That is not something that you have to do the first thing, right? Especially when the previous invitation was given. You were booked for this uh, particular banquet this particular time. You know that. It was issued ahead of time. And a person who says, no, I got to go see and examine the oxen, he is a frivolous excuse maker. It doesn't fly. It doesn't satisfy the owner. He gets angry, and righteously so. And the final excuse is probably the best one of all. I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And of course, that is not uh, one of those excuses. I actually heard a sermon where 
um, a pastor actually joked, he said, well, he married, and that's why she, she won't let him go, right? Uh, so the, the, there's, there, there is an excuse, and there is almost a righteous excuse, but no. Um, of course, you know that in the Old Testament, a person who got married, he had a time uh, that was set, a year's time, that he was able to you know, not go to war, not do anything, but just to be with his wife, etc. But of course, uh, there is nothing to prevent him from taking his wife to the banquet. There is no limitation on that account. And so it's not like this was the, their wedding night and he says, no, I just can't do it. I, it's just not possible right now, right? So it's another excuse. And that, those excuses, they actually reveal what human heart is towards God. And that's how Paul, in the book of Romans, explains how people view God and what their attitude toward God is. In Romans 3, verse 9, we read, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. People are willing to talk about God from a distance. They're willing to entertain thoughts of future faith. But when you come with a choice, now choose to follow the Lord. Now the Lord says, come. As soon as you do that, you see a change in a person's countenance. It's so apparent, so frequent. I've seen enough of it. I don't ever want to see it again, and yet I know I will. Because that is just the reality of a human sinful condition. We do not want anything to do with this God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are all without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not see fit to acknowledge God, says the scripture. And if you remember yourself as an unbeliever, you remember that darkness from within that fought against God's invitation. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't have a Bible until I was 15. And before I had my Bible, guess what? I thought I was a God-seeking individual. I had a knowledge or a faith in God that I couldn't profess. I didn't know any Christians around me. 
but I, you know, inside I had this testimony that God exists. I, I, I didn't have to have any proof. I looked around. It made sense to me that this world has a supernatural origin. And I had a faith in God. And I was looking for God as I thought. But you know what happened as soon as I started attending an evangelical Bible preaching, preaching church? I heard the gospel invitation and I realized that the gospel invitation demands that I sever ties with my love of sin. And as soon as I realized that that is the price of following after this God, I started making excuses. I started saying, not right now. I actually remember thinking that. And actually regretting that the gospel invitation was so urgent because I realized no matter how many excuses I give, none of them are truly satisfactory. So the gospel message reveals something about people who do not know the Lord, religious or uh, th that is, you know, plain unbelieving people, but there is another side to this ugly truth of human sinfulness. Religious people don't want to have that invitation of grace. Because religious people, they want to have a relationship with God on their terms, where they contribute something to God. And then they can expect something from God for their righteousness, for their good behavior. And so a gracious invitation where you are acknowledged as undeserving, as worthless of your own selves, is actually an insult to these people. In Romans 10, verse 2, we read, For I hear them bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And that's Paul speaking of religious, zealous Jews. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, righteousness to everyone who believes. And as shocking and surprising as it is, the truth is religious people hate the gospel of grace. For that very reason, it is of grace. It bothers them that you pay nothing and you can expect nothing. You cannot trade with God in this kind of a reality because it gives you everything, but then asks everything back. And that is not a relationship that most people are comfortable with in a religious context. So there is a sinfulness of both the unbelievers and of those who pretend to believe, but actually fight against the righteousness of God. So we read, the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, and then in verse 24, we continue, none of those men who were, invite, who were invited shall taste my banquet. That is one scary verse. Because especially people who have grown up in religious homes, uh, in evangelical homes, who have heard the gospel told, read, sung to them from the moment they actually could understand anything. And they have heard these invitations sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. 
And they say, oh, not, not yet, not right now. The Lord says every Sunday, come, this is the day of salvation. This is a good day to come to the Lord to be saved. And there is always an excuse. There is always an excuse. No matter how ridiculous the excuse is, there is one. And so, an empty chair in God's house is a proof, not only of God's goodness, but of man's sinfulness. And the scary thing about man's sinfulness is that God is not, under no obligation to keep inviting. Inviting you. If you resist God's grace once and again and again and again and again, you may come to a point where God will say to you what he said about those people, and that is, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He will actually say, it's over for you. Yes, you can live, you can you know, buy oxen, you can buy fields, you can get married, you can have children, you can do everything this world has to offer. There's one thing that you cannot do, and that is to join this heavenly kingdom where God is the master and you're his honored guest. That is a scary prospect. And if you hear my voice, and if you're one of those people who have said, not yet, not today, how many times are you going to keep saying that? And are you willing to risk that reality? Because repentance is not something you do. Repentance is something God does in you. He gifts you the grace to know your sinfulness. He gives you the grace to believe that God is love. He gives you the grace to know that love lifts you. It is not of your own making. You cannot manufacture saving faith in you. So hurry to say yes while there is still time, while there is that time of grace for you. But people say no. And God does not just throw up his hands in the air and say, I'm done. He repeats his merciful command so that his banquet and his hall in the kingdom of, hall, uh, in the kingdom of heaven will not be empty. So an empty chair in God's house is a requirement for us because they don't fill, out, fill in by themselves. Between God and people who receive God's invitation, there are these servants that are sent to call, to explain, to compel. And so we read in verse 21, Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, Go out to the highways, hedges, compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And we see here an example of a faithful servant who obeys his master's will. And that is where I get scared with this text. 
because I'm one of the Lord's servants. Not by my own making. I was just received an invitation that I, in my time, answered. And I have the joy of being in the kingdom of the Lord. But the kingdom of the Lord is not a time when you just sit and eat and say, hey, waiter, uh, can you bring me some more grace? Can you bring me some more peace? Can you bring me some more love? That invitation ultimately transforms for us those who have answered that invitation into becoming these servants of the Lord to whom the Lord says, you go out quickly and go collect other people who have not yet heard the gospel, who have not yet received my invitation. You go, quickly go and compel them to come in. So the master says, and this is what he says, I believe, to everyone who is truly a Christian anywhere in the Lord's house. Go out quickly and bring them in. And when everything is already done and you've brought everyone you could think of, the Lord says, go out and compel the rest to come in, that my house may be filled. You can ask a question, how much should I evangelize? When can I stop? And I can say, well, while there is room, there is no stopping. Right? Is that a right conclusion? If there is room, that means we cannot rest. If there is room, if there are empty chairs around you, that means there is a responsibility for you to be faithful in going out and finding these people who have not yet heard. And it's not that hard. It's not like we've gone throughout the whole world and we've told everyone and everybody says, oh, I bought a, you know, a couple of oxen and poor oxen, you know, they get bought all the time. Uh, and I, you know, I got married and all of that. We, the truth is there are so many people who have not heard in this you know, little town of Hollister how many people who have yet not heard an invitation, who have not heard our invitation. You can, you know, you can exhaust yourself just trying to fill in, you know, uh, trying to get to everyone in Hollister. But what other choice is there? The Lord says, go out quickly, bring them in, go out and compel them. Now compel is something much more than, you know, giving a tract, right? If you give a tract, you know, and say, would you read that in your free time or something? You know, that's, that's non-combative, not confronting. Um, it's kind of okay. Um, some people get irritated if they get that kind of literature too much. Um, but for the most part, people say, oh, thank you, sure. But compel is actually something that requires you to know these people, to establish a connection, to actually understand them, and then to compel them, which it means to wrestle with their unwillingness, to wrestle with their excuse-making, and to say, how long will you be making those kind of excuses? You need to come. How long will you test the Lord's patience? It may run out on you. And you need to compel those people, sometimes with a grace invitation, sometimes with fear, because some people will not understand a gracious invitation. And I definitely needed some fear to compel me to call upon the Lord for salvation. We have a command from the Lord. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is a command to make disciples. And when can we stop fulfilling this command? Well, well there, when there is no more room at the banquet of the Lord, much less when there is plenty of room still in our house. But finally, an empty chair is not only a testimony to God's goodness and his gracious invitation, not only is a witness against the sinfulness of people, not only it is a reminder that we must be faithful in the Lord's service of sharing the gospel and calling people to come to know the Lord, an empty chair is a harbinger of salvation. Now, a harbinger is a big word, but it basically means something that foreshadows a future event. It is something that is like an anticipatory sign of what is to come. Would the Lord give us chairs that he did not plan to fill in? Would the Lord give you grace that he would not plan to use to the uttermost? I don't think so. I think as I look at these chairs, I say, yes, there is room. There is a song that people sing, there is room at the cross for you. And while I see these empty chairs, yes, they tell me, go, testify, bear that gospel witness. But I look at these chairs and I say, that means there is room. That means there are people out there that will hear. And maybe after a first couple of excuse, excuses, God will give them grace to see how foolish, how empty those excuses are. And he will compel them to come. And they will sit here and they will join us in praise of our Redeemer. It's a promise of salvation. It's a promise that God is capable of saving people. He saved us. Look at each other. We were those people that would say, no, 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 not today. And yet you are here today. And you have embraced the gospel. So there is that promise. We just need to go and we need to tell them. And that is what we need to do. In chapter, act, uh, in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, we see the following statement. When they opposed and reviled him, that is Paul, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And that is something that I think the Lord's people need to learn to do. After you have approached your neighbor, after you've been most gracious and kind, after you've invited him to your table, after you have explained the gospel to them number and number times again, and they would still be stubbornly refusing to follow after Christ. There needs to be something from within that basically says, Lord, I have done all I can to present the gospel to this individual. And I cannot, in good you know, conscience, conscience, consciousness, good conscience, uh, keep wasting your precious resources upon a person who is just willfully stubborn. 
That's what Paul actually decides here. He sees his Jewish people, his kin, for whom he says, I'm ready. If I could, I would just trade places. I would exchange heaven for hell for them. But there comes a point where you say, okay, I'm done here. I'm going to the next person. That is a hard thing to choose to do. But I think we need to choose to do that with people with, with whom we have been able to repeatedly present the gospel. And that doesn't mean we hate them. It doesn't mean we choose for them that they will never come. We pray for them. We extend that grace. But we focus our attention on someone who has not heard, on someone who has not yet received that invitation at all. And what we have as, as an assurance in the gospel or in the book of Acts, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the, the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. That is what awaits all of us who will follow this direction of the Lord. If there are people who have not heard, go to them, tell them. But if they refuse to hear, shake off the dust of your, of your, of your feet, figuratively speaking, and go to someone who will hear until you find those whom the Lord will compel to come into the presence of the Lord. And that is why this task is greater than any one of us. We need to have the Lord's grace. We need to pray, and we need to pray for one another. So I conclude this sermon with a plea that you would pray, that you would pray for yourself to receive this word and to act upon it, to become one of those faithful servants that is willing to go and to find those unsaved people who have not yet heard and compel them to come to know the Lord. And pray for me. Pray for one another to that end. Paul knew this urgency and this need, and in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, isn't, isn't, isn't this the essence of what we need to pray for this church, for one another? as we strive to spread the gospel invitation throughout the city and by the Lord's grace through missions to the end of the world. Amen. May the Lord help us to that end.